talk the whole night through. Good morning. Good morning to you. Imagine Eddie, who thinks he's courting a ready-made family. Imagine Debbie, who can't convince anyone that a foundling baby is not her own. Where did it come from? I got it for Christmas. You'll bleed all right. So will the other one. Debbie Reynolds is Adele. Shelley Winters is Helen. What's the matter with Helen? Something the matter? Sticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. As always, I'm Samantha Ellis, and I'm here with Kristen and Kim. We have the Ticklish Trio back together again. It's spring, and we are talking all things Debbie Reynolds. This year marked what would have been her 90th birthday, so we are incredibly honored to have Debbie Reynolds' son, Todd Fisher, with us. Welcome to the show, Todd. Thank you. I'm the... uh the only gene pool left of hers on Earth. That is so, like, bizarre. Well, Carrie's <laughs> favorite thing to say is that she and I were a direct result of Hollywood inbreeding. <laughs> that sounds like something she would say. <laughs> exactly. I was fortunate. It's very ironic. I just have to throw this out there. I was in San Francisco over the weekend, and we actually went and saw Eddie Fisher's gravesite, which was very cool to see because I did not know he was out in San Francisco. I was out of the loop. He married a Chinese lady that was a really cool person, Betty Lynn. In fact, it was the only woman he stayed with for any significant period of time. And in fact, till death did them part actually applied. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it was really cool to see his final resting place. I did not know about it. So it was a nice Hollywood death tour outside of Hollywood. So right. um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm actually super fond of LA cemeteries and seeing Debbie and Carrie was really surreal at Forest Lawn Hollywood Hills. That is a beautiful, beautiful cemetery if you have not been. But we're talking about celebrating Debbie yeah. <laughs> this hour, exactly. And I'll admit, out of the three of us, I want to say I'm the Debbie nerd. I think we all have a really deep appreciation of her though. We were just talking before recording Really, we haven't heard that many stories, if any, of anybody not liking Debbie. She's just an all-around loved person, and she was such a significant tie back to the golden age of musicals, and she was around with us so long that, to me, it's sort of like the tie to the past that I held on to, so I was a huge, huge, huge fan of hers. Well, her Um, career did span a long time. She started in the late 40s and, you know, obviously went on till the end. She was loved, I think, not only because she was cute and fun to watch and had obviously talent and funny and all that. I think it was actually the way that she related to her fans. You know, she had this great respect for her fans and people really felt like they connected and knew her. And that was a a sort of a gift that she gave back to her people. It was very high on her list of important things. That's so true. I think we were also saying as classic film fans, she was such a classic film fan. You could just see her love for the era and for her peers. She was a nerd about it. She collected movie costumes and she was basically just like us in that respect. I I mean, 
grew up in the Valley in Los Angeles and, you know, went to the movies for 10 cents. And she was a fan long before she became an employee of MGM. She just was like the rest of us had her favorites, Hep Hepburn, Betty Davis, you know, those, she was totally enamored by those people. And then she woke up one day and was working with Betty Davis. And, you know, that wasn't her dream, but it became her reality. Samantha loves Debbie Reynolds so much. She's getting a tattoo in her honor. So <laughs> I haven't yet. That's another thing we were discussing. Debbie was one of the first classic movie stars that I ever wrote to. And part of the inscription that she replied with, I'm getting tattooed on my arm eventually. Not all stars write back to their fan base. Uh, they have people do it for them. Uh, my mother was one of the few that would kind of accumulate her fan mail. And then when she would come home off the road, she would sit in bed and she would lay it all out. And she would go through literally hundreds of letters, sometimes hundreds and hundreds. You know, someone would be there to help her, obviously, like lick the stamp, so to speak. But she would personally respond to most of these requests. And the reason why is because she knew that's how she would want to be treated. It was a mutual respect and understanding of what it was to be a fan. So having been a fan and then now you're a fan of stars and then one day you're the star. It doesn't happen every day. <laughs> I know I was relating before we started one of the things that really endeared me. She was at an event in Washington, D.C. that I attended back in college with Kitty Carlisle and Carol Channing. And I was all of 18 and starstruck and she stopped and she talked to every single person at that stage door. She came up to me, signed programs, just was the sweetest, most endearing thing. That was definitely her trademark. Uh, Carrie and I, when we were very young, and I tell this story in my book, we were walking down the street of Beverly Hills to go to the toy store and we were each told we could have one thing at this toy store. And so we were anxious to get in. And just as about to walk through the door, some fans came up and stopped us. And my mother was talking to them and signing an autograph. And Carrie and I are pulling on her to, to let's get in the door of the store because we want to get our toy. And my mother pulled us down to eye level. And she looked us in the eye and she said, no, 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 no. That's not what we do. These people are like our family. And without them, we would not have what we have. So we have to take the time to include them in whatever we do. I mean, you know, and made it really understandable to us why there was going to be a delay in purchasing toys that moment. And of course, you know, eventually she finished and we went in and got our toys. That happened enough times to where we really had that, shall we say, programmed into our consciousness. And later, Carrie got it and started doing that herself. I don't know if you knew it towards the latter days of her career, she started going to these comic cons and literally doing the same thing, you know, meeting 500 people or however many people wait. So it was definitely handed down from my mom to Carrie. Yeah, honestly, you guys have such a special family and it took such determination, both from Debbie and Carrie to really be the stars that they were. And they were so formidable on screen. I think people underestimate Debbie a lot is just the, you know, sunshiny, all-American girl, but you see her in something like the unsinkable Molly Brown, and there is a real fire under her all the time. Whenever she's working, she's always on. Early in her career, obviously, didn't know what to do with her exactly. She was just cute, and they put her in these little films like Daughter of Rosie O'Grady or, you know, little poop-poopy-doop numbers. Uh, later, they thought, oh, she can actually talk and do other things, you know, or sing or something, and so they started doing it. But the catered affair is one of my favorites. 
Uh, you know, it's a Gore Vidal story or script. That story, she acts with Betty Davis, you know, and uh, Ernest Borgnine. And that's a phenomenal little serious dramatic role for her. And as, there's no dancing and singing and any of that, you know, and she nails that. It's a very fine dramatic portrayal of, of this character. It's also a great story. So I really like that role as much as any of her roles, especially as it, as it relates to drama. I mean, you know, in the 60s, when she was number one box office, she was pretty famous for those sort of situation comedies playing across from somebody, you know, like Glenn Ford or whatever, and they're going to do that shtick. And, you know, she was amazing at Pratt Falls. Obviously, Molly Brown is the tomboy thing, but there's a lot of good drama in there, too. I mean, you don't get nominated for Academy Award for doing comedy. I mean, it just doesn't happen. So obviously, Molly Brown had a great story across. It's unusual for a musical like that to get you nominated. So, I, you know, she was most proud of Molly Brown. It was, I think, something very close to her personality. I think that was something she thought was, you know, one of her best roles. But I always fall back to the catered affair. Just if you haven't seen that one of Debbie, that's a, I know you guys have, but that's one of my favorites. Before we get into it, here's a short little ad for our Patreon. If you are a fan of old Hollywood, classic entertainment, and the joy of pop culture history in all its forms, please subscribe to our Patreon page like these wonderful people, Christine Meyer, Danny, David Floyd, Jacob Haller, MCF, and Rachel Kramarchuk. Our Patreon is located at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. A special reminder, if we can get up to 100 subscribers, we're looking forward to posting a deep dive into an infamous movie in ticklish business circles. Does love truly mean never having to say you're sorry? Well, if we can get to our goal, you'll hear all of our opinions on love story. Trust me, there's a lot of them. Will you be in Los Angeles for this year's TCM Classic Film Festival? If so, be on the lookout for Kristen and Kim, as we'll be giving away a prize pack to one lucky winner, courtesy of the fine folks at Breakfast at Dominique's, where you're putting old Hollywood glamour into every cup of coffee. If you see us at the fest, just use the code word Crawford to see if you're a winner. No purchase is necessary, and if you're not at the festival, no worries. You can also enter to win another prize from Breakfast at Dominique's by just subscribing to our Instagram at TicklishBiz, telling us your favorite classic film, and tagging a friend who might enjoy a cup of coffee alongside a classic movie with you. Now, back to the show. I do have to ask before we get into the three, Debbie was a, a huge collector of movie memorabilia at a time when the studios did not care at all. And she tried very hard to start a museum. I know that I was fortunate to see you, Todd, when you came to the TCM Classic Film Festival with a bunch of the costumes. You know, I'm curious. I know that the collection had to be downsized, but are there still pieces that you have? I I purposely came upstairs to where I am right now because I'm next to a room. This is an archive room that I'm right next to. And if you look behind me, you see up on the, I'll turn a light on here. Oh my goodness. This room is full of costumes. I don't know if you can see that okay. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Well, the listeners won't be able to see it, but basically what we're seeing is like dozens of clear storage bins. That is insane. That's beautiful. Well, I'll just give you like, uh, no one's actually seen a lot of this. You know, it's not out on display publicly, but you know, there are literally hundreds of different bins. So these are a lot of my mother's costumes. But in addition uh, to costumes, you know, like these are all of her scripts, for an example. So that's, you know, and, but some of her scripts, and you're going to tell me what these movies are, are are also bound like this. 
So like that's I love those. She had I everything. feel like so many old movie stars had their scripts bound. That's such yeah, a smart was, thing to do. It was, it was not all did, but a lot of them did because it that was their sense of preserving their work. As you pointed out, the studios, you know, as it was, especially as it related to costumes, they didn't really see any value in any of that. My mother did uh, as a fan, as you pointed out. Uh, you know, but when you come to her house, which is here on the property, there were no costumes on display or, you know, not a lot of artifacts that related to the movie. And she collected all of that for us. She wanted the museum, you know, and, and her idea. And we built a museum in here in Vegas for a period of years. And so that was her passion was to create a museum. So I think she'd be pleased with, you know, what's happening with the Academy. There is something. I think she would have done it slightly different, obviously. I think my mother was a little bit more of the people, so to speak. Sometimes the Academy can be very uh, esoteric or self-serving. And it is their mission as the Academy to do Academy kind of things. But whereas my mother's mission was just that one of a fan. So her goals were a little different. So her collecting was different. I mean, she had 3,000 costumes at one point. It's a lot of costumes. And that's the thing. That's what's so amazing about her is that she saw the value in them and was able to buy them up at the right time and had the right connections to do that. I haven't seen any in person, but I've seen like lists of what she owned. In addition to all of her costumes, she owned everybody else's costumes from Singing in the Rain and dozens and dozens of films. So it's well, just like, so incredible. Here's a, this was her catalog for the 20th Century Fox auction that took place, which was after the MGM auction. And by today's terms, this is kind of a cheesy catalog, but she did, this is how she acquired a lot of that stuff. Uh, the MGM auction was uh, a four-part catalog. And the secret to all of this was, what was the criteria, you know, to collect? Was it, what was it based on? Her criteria essentially was, whatever was a significant film of a particular year, she felt she should have something from each film. And that translated into basically every Academy Award winning or nominated film from the beginning of the Academy forward. It, it even predated the Academy by certain films because she started with Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, Harold Lloyd, Mary Pickford, Dillix Fairbanks, and then it graduated forward from there. So her collection was vast. And, and she did it as I said, is a passion to preserve it for all of us. It wasn't like some collectors, like even if you come to my house, you'll see a lot of stuff, you know, out on display. I'm doing it for sort of other reasons, more like a traditional collector. I'm envious. I have my mini Debbie collection. I'm, yeah. I, I don't have anything to bring out, but I have a, a poster of the mating game. Honestly, a lot of this is inspired by your collection, Todd, because uh, I've seen when you do your, your Facebook lives, I've seen all the posters of Debbie's films that you have. I have the mating game so far. I believe with Kristen, I bought a Tammy and the Bachelor insert. I've got Bundle of Joy. I've got, oh, I'm starting. And then from the, like the profiles and history auction of Debbie and Carrie's things, I got a pair of her earrings that I have. Oh, that's cool. When that auction went on, I didn't quite know what to do with a lot of that stuff. I knew my mom would want it, people like yourself that cared, you know, she would want them to have something if they wanted something. And so we've tried to keep that going. We do have a lot of stuff. So I do try to put it out there occasionally for people to collect on their own. Yeah, I mean, it's such a great span of all her films. And speaking of spanning all her films, we have a top three to discuss. So Kim, why don't you start things off? Do you have a third favorite Debbie film to share with us? So we should say that just because there's three of us, we're going to go around, round robin style. Todd, feel free to comment as you will. If somebody has a movie higher on their list, we will wait until we get to that person. The code word is going to be 
Cammy. So Kim, number three. Number three. I have been staring at this list. Staring. This has gone through so many different versions. There's so many different films, different eras, different things I want to focus on. Finally, I settled. I'm curious to see if this gets picked higher up. I settled on Athena. I first time watched this one not too, too long ago. I think it was actually in quarantine. And I just got, I watched that and I think hit the deck right at the same time and got completely and utterly sucked in by the whole just craziness of that plot line, the physical education of it. I think to be perfectly honest, I had actually watched it because of Steve Reeves's bit part in that. And I've been going through Steve Reeves's filmography this week and I should have actually revisited it. We're looking at a script of Athena. It looks like- Yeah, I I brought that over to the table. You bring it up. So within these, so this is her personal script and it even has the the change pages, the notes and all that, but also has the pictures. Oh, that's beautiful. they They would mix this up, you know, with photos- as it relates to, you know, the, the different scenes. And a lot of times there'll be production notes in here and little scribble here and there, but there's some little, all the dance. A lot of these stills were rare, you know, even by today's standards. Uh, so I, I think that's an interesting choice. If you are my two cents, I'm sure the girls have more to say than me, but um, you know, it's certainly not the number one pick that most people would be aware of uh, hit the deck. Also, you know, they're spectacles, but there are things within those films that to me were almost like vaudeville, you know, like, like they do these variety of things inside these shows. And so there's some very entertaining numbers and it was showcasey, you know, that's how the studio showcased their talents. So I think both those movies have amazing sequences and dance numbers and it's impressive. I think Krista and I were talking a little earlier. I love Athena. I wouldn't put it as one of my absolute favorites, but To me, it's more of a Jane Powell film with the exception of Imagine, the number that she does with Victor Moan. That is one of her best numbers. I would easily put that in my top 10 Debbie Reynolds numbers. My mother didn't talk a lot about that movie, Athena, but she came to not like Victor Moan because of the way he treated Pierre Angel. Yep. Oh, wow. Yeah. So my mom was, as you know, you know, she was very protective of her friends. And Pierre Angeli became a friend of my mom's. And Vic was from a chauvinistic, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, misled generation of men that did not treat women and, you know, really treated her horribly. And my mother never got over that. And she used to be ever bring up Vic Damone's name. She would be like, no, 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 no. I don't care what his talents were. You can't get over the, the personal defects here as the way he related to girls. You know, my mother and sister both were obviously strong, outspoken girls and were protective of girls and, and were even forerunners in various aspects of what a woman could be in this town. Long before women had certain rights in this town, my mother was way onto that, you know, and was able to stick up for women's rights. For example, even the stunt men were men and stunt men for women. I mean, she was like, what? Why don't I have a woman stunt man, so to speak? What's wrong with this picture? So, you know, she was always very aware of these things and fought for these rights. And if she saw somebody being abused, look out because she's, you know, one for a cause. So I, I like, just thought I'd bring that up. We should rag on Vic whenever we get a chance. I, I feel like <laughs> Debbie and I would have definitely been ragging on Vic Damone. As somebody who's heard those stories, yeah, I've always been team Pierre Angelique. 
I've heard my fair share from Diane Carroll as well when I met her. <laughs> Here, I don't know them all, but I know my mom also was a very fair person who didn't just pick on somebody, you know, for the wrong reason. So if my mother didn't like you, you had to earn it. I can't imagine Debbie having a hard side for anybody. So yeah, it must have been. <laughs> I would rarely see, there are only a handful of people I can actually think of in my life where she would bristle up about them. And that was one of them. Uh, the other was a business manager by the name of Irving Briskin, who was her, her early business manager who stole from her. I remember, I mean, it was palatable, the air around when he walked up to her one time. I was just a little kid and I was like, wow, I've never seen her be that hostile. So it never happened. But my mother was a tough cracker too. You know, I'd, I'd seen her knock a man down with one punch. Dynamite comes to small packages. Kristen? Sure. My number three. Yeah. So this was tough because I knew what my number one was, but I didn't have two and three were kind of a toss up. So I had to go with 1956's Bundle of Joy. Tammy. <laughs> I was waiting for that. So we'll come back to it. Samantha, what about you? All right. So I'm curious to see if you guys have thoughts on this one. My number three is The Mating Game from 59. No? Okay. Well, I love I've seen it. I've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> I, have I think in many ways, my mother is as cute as she gets in that movie. I could not agree more. I have the poster to that one. It's my favorite in my collection. I think the poster for that one is so cute. And part of the reason why I love it is just the comedy. I think it's some of her comedic best, honestly. Yeah. And I have sung Tony Randall's praises forever. I think he's one of the most underrated supporting actors totally of the golden age. And seeing him in a leading role opposite her in this is so good. He is. Uh, it was the first movie set I was ever on. I'm just a few months old sitting in her lap. I have many pictures. I've seen pictures. It's one of my favorite pictures. And if you look at those pictures, she's in her little director's chair. and She has the, the, the straw in her hair. And I'm sitting there, you know. So, I mean, that was my first set. And my first time ever sitting on a horse and you know, a lot of things about that that were important. But going back and watching that movie years later when I was conscious enough to understand what I was looking at, I agree with you. I think that her her comedy timing is impeccable there. She's very relaxed. The entire movie shot on the back lot in one little corner of the MGM back lot. I mean, they never leave this little farm in the back lot. Sidney Gilleroff was on the set. I have home movies from that set, a lot of home movies from that back behind the scenes of that movie. Not that I can remember. I only remember because of the movies and my mom talking about it. But Carrie remembered a little bit more because she was like maybe two. But I agree with you. That's a very, that's a sleeper and it's really funny. And it even works today because we still have the IRS harassing people to this day. <laughs> as I was doing my taxes this year, it was like right at the same time as they were airing her marathon and I had it on in the corner. I'm like, would that ever really happen? Would we ever have a loophole in these days? Well, but, actually, those same rules would be problematic to this day. You know, the idea mm -hmm. that you're bartering things and they wouldn't like that. And uh, so there would they would definitely have similar problems. I, You know, the idea that you could sick the IRS on somebody is a little bit harder to, to, to fathom that that could be used that way. But I mean, I do think it's a it's a fun plausible story and of course the outcome we don't want to ruin it for everybody is fantastic it's a fun outcome for the movie with a little a nice twist tony randall being drunk i'm telling me he isn't one of the best drunks being an actor and being told to play a drunk is really difficult one of the most difficult things you'll do because most of us it doesn't look right i mean it, you can overdo it it just looks silly uh you know so uh, the tony randall just nails the being drunk thing 
so amazing. Uh, you know, the guys you said, I think you're right. He's one of the most underrated comedian actors ever. I definitely agree. And I think Debbie really is the strength of that film as well. I mean, she just fits into that farmer's daughter's role perfectly. Just that spunk that she has. And the costumes are so cute. It's really her in her prime. To yeah, me. it is. And all those stunts that you see, most of them, other than the horseback riding, jumping over the fence, that was done by a guy named Lauren, who was her stunt man. And if you look carefully at that, you'll see he's got hairy arms riding that horse, blonde wig. That's uh, too funny. That was, that was definitely one of those films where she is really showing her Tom girl, tomboy stuff. She's the one jumping out of the hay loft, insisted on doing that herself, wrestling with the boys in the hay, something she did in real life. So she grew up around three boys older than her. So she really had to fight for herself. I believe it. She seems like the type. <laughs> Kim, what's your number three? Or two? My number two, like I said, I'm kind of going for the deeper cuts here. There are some films that, you know, I potentially would have picked, but I wondered how much we'd be stepping on each other's toes. So I'm trying to be that person. I settled on the gazebo for my number two. I wrote about Glenn Ford in college a lot. So that was a film I watched a lot and just fell in love with. The whole plot essentially revolves around, I'm not going to dive too deep into it. Debbie and Glenn Ford play a married couple and something gets buried underneath the gazebo in the backyard. And then it's this kind of, it's a very restrained stage play, like dark comedy. And I have always thought they had such amazing chemistry in that the chemistry they achieved the banter it's one of my favorite Glenn Ford roles it's one of my favorite with her and it's just such a quirky out of left field film and I just I encourage everybody to check it out if you haven't seen it I do I love that movie also I think it has uh, as you say and it's a black and white which was obviously a, a choice of them they had color at the time I think part of that, the mystery aspects of it, you know, in the plot, uh, they thought it would be kind of like a black and white thriller in that respect. And, and, it, and it has, it definitely has that intrigue going on throughout. There's a lot of conflict and intrigue. But as you say, once again, there you have this great comedy timing. My mother became, you know, lifelong friends with him uh, after that. And she used to call him father. He asked my mother to marry him like 15 times, and she always perceived him as far too old for her. But in the end, of course, she marries Harry Carl. It's, you know, even older than that. And she should probably should have gone for one of these deals rather than the Harry Carl deal, as it turns out. But uh, he was such a beautiful gentleman, really wonderful guy. And they were friends to the end of his life. Uh, she would go visit him forever, uh, you know, over his house and uh, they would hang out. And I mean, just you know, I think you would really, uh, you wouldn't be disappointed about him either. Uh, I could, I could name a few actors who would disappoint you uh, as human beings, or, you know, as celebrities uh, to the public aspect and, and not him. He really was a, a class act. Oh, you just made me so happy with that. That's such a fun film. It's a very layered one. It doesn't stick to one genre, really. It kind of flops around. And it's another one of Debbie really like, it's hard to say at her prime. I mean, it's the sixties almost when, you know, her studio career was over, but she showed that she still had it. She had the, that amazing dance sequence 
in the black and white. And it's really rare to see Debbie in black and white, honestly. I mean, I think of the catered affair, but there weren't yeah. too many others. They really wanted to show her off in color. So I think that and her 60s look differs from her 50s look. So it's, it's definitely a little bit different. And it's a different type of movie than what she would normally start in. But it's definitely one that sticks out in her filmography, I think. Well, you brought up the dance number. I mean, a lot of times those kinds of things were added into a movie because of her. It wasn't in the original script. And then they add this stuff in because they don't know what to do with her. You know, she's kind of like so much talent. Uh, the movie How the West Was One was uh, a good example of that. Henry Hathaway just was what did just was like oh wow well Debbie can do this and then Debbie would what would you do here pretty soon it's like Debbie's just they start writing the story around Debbie because she's just got so much to give uh in terms of her talent her singing and her dancing and how the west one same thing all those razor ruckus tonight that was an add-in so there are good examples of of them using the word catered, you know, catering to her talents, <laughs> uh, because she did have so many and it was, they would try to write them into the stories. I can't imagine the gazebo without that dance number. I really can't. It would be such a different movie. Well, and it's, and it is sort of off topic in a way, you know, I mean, it isn't, it really doesn't have anything to do directly with the central plot. Oh, but, for sure. Yeah. They did that a lot in classic film. <laughs> Exactly. They definitely went off the rails quite a bit. But I mean, that one just showcases Debbie's talent so well. I agree. Like the spotlight is on her that whole time. It's not like a movie like Singing in the Rain where she's, you know, dancing toe to toe with Donald O'Connor and Gene Kelly. That's like all her in the gazebo, which I think is so cool. And it shows that great growth and evolution she was starting to do in the 60s, getting past the cute little MGM ingenue showing the acting, showing the, the tremendous versatility that she had. I mean, she got, you know, some of that in the 50s, but towards the 60s, she got the freedom to do a little bit of acting. Yeah, it's like the singing nun, you know, was one of those examples too. You're, oh, we're going to use her because she can sing and whatever. But there's actually some fine drama in that movie. It was difficult for her to acquire those roles. Uh, obviously, she had quite a bit of pull in the middle 60s. Her box office draw was very high. So she had some capabilities to do what she wanted to do. Uh, as a lot of actors today, you know, it would have been a different world today, you know, had she been in this environment. As, as it relates specifically to those kind of movies, you know, she, she would start, it got to the point where she was picking these films, you know, and was able to say yes and no. And so you, she loved working with Glenn Ford and James Garner. And, you know, the, they were our buddies. James Garner used to play with me in my room when I was a kid, you know, play slot cars with me. I mean, he hated the big parties. He'd come to the party for my mom, but he didn't like hanging out with the adults. So he'd literally come into my room with my buddies and we'd race slot cars in my room. And he'd sit on the floor with the, the kid, with, you know, or whatever, 12, you know, 13, you know, and he was totally, again, he was one of those guys, another magical guy. We're all huge James Garner fans. So like all three of us fangirled at the same time. <laughs> well, as long as we're talking about these leading men, here are, here's my mother's collection of autograph pictures behind me. And there's oh, wow. we all have personal notes written to her. So there's Glenn up, there's Glenn Ford up there and Jimmy Stewart. And, you know, it comes all the way down. Every leading man, there's Tony Curtis, you know, so everybody who she worked with is here. And of course, James Garner is here and you name it, you know, Gregory Peck. And here's the girls over here, mostly. It's kind of, a, oh, those are beautiful. But what's cool about these is every one of these has a personal note 
to Debbie. You know, these are not just autographed pictures, like random. You know, these are all very personal inscribed things. She loved working with Jimmy Stewart, but didn't only got to do it that one time, you know, so that wasn't like her favorite leading man. But whereas she was teamed up with, with Glenn Ford and, and Garner more so. Well, I'll throw out my number two, which is a very different film, which I doubt anybody else is going to have on their list. It's from Debbie's 70s period. So flirting with the end of our criteria for the classic studio era. But it's a discovery that I watched last year. And it's Curtis Harrington's What's the Matter with Helen, which is Debbie Reynolds and Shelley Winters. They play mothers of two boys that have been accused of murder and they decide to relocate to Los Angeles and kind of start over. And Debbie's character starts a dance studio and starts to see some success, but poor Shelley just can't get over the guilt and the issues that she's uh, escaped from. And it is all sorts of weird and interesting. Curtis Harrington directed it. And it's one of those films that, you know, I think it's a bum rap for being one of those quote, psycho bitty thrillers that you saw in the sixties and seventies with, older actresses doing horror, most famously embodied with something like Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. But I feel that this movie has a bit more glitz, a bit more panache. It's Debbie getting to play completely an anthema character to who she played before. I loved how everybody's taking their role seriously, but I feel like she takes the role more serious than everybody else. Shelley had played these types of characters before, I think that Debbie actually treats this as a film, you know, it gives it a hundred percent and it's got a crazy as hell ending. And I don't know, I just really thought it was, you know, we talk about certain actors that didn't get to play every genre and Debbie just proved she could literally play every genre, including whatever one would consider this movie to be. Well, it's an interesting choice because it's the only movie that my mother produced If you look carefully, it says Harmon Productions. My grandmother's maiden name was Harmon. So my great-grandmother was Harmon. So she actually funded this movie and produced this movie entirely and and picked the script, picked the characters, picked the cast, you know, was intimately involved in this. And it was a film that she thought she could handle as a producer and financially. What she didn't really calculate was how crazy Shelley Winters was. That's right. uh, I mean, I mean that in the most loving sense of the word, but Shelley is a method actor and became the, the literally the character in the film, which is a person just coming, you know, unraveled and, it, and it's and did it on the set. I mean, she was driving my mother completely nuts. And that's hard to do because Carrie and I were experts at doing that. You know, we had met our match. Shelley was definitely the, the character, but it's it is a fine dramatic role for her. And again, it was her choosing that for her own movie at the time she could have picked a number of scripts they had looked for a lot of stories and scripts at that time and she chose that one on purpose and yeah i think it's a sleeper very much so and i think that you know getting to see it's made in the 70s set in the 30s into the 40s and debbie gets to you know have the gene harlow hair and the outfits there's a subversive thing to it like her character is working to create kind of this next generation of child stars in a way, like a bevy of Shirley Temples. And I feel like, you know, we talk about, I appreciate the movies about Hollywood, talking about Hollywood, stuff like Inside Daisy Clover, or SOB. And I feel like that movie is kind of one of those and that I think it is showing this dark underbelly to Hollywood, but gussing up as, you know, some type of like horror film uh, or what have you. But 
it's very underrated. I want more people to watch it. It became a little bit prophetic too, because she had bought it, bought a, started a dance school that went on for 40 years. And literally right after that movie, she actually bought DR Studios and started her own dance studio. Uh, used to always say she was going to retire and teach classes. She never quite did that. But her dance school was the biggest dance school in uh, Los Angeles for decades. Samantha, what's your next one? I made a last minute switch. I did not want to put Singing in the Rain as my top three because I had a feeling it would be covered. <laughs> I wanted to you know, take the opportunity to spotlight some other films of hers. And I'm, I'm kind of going back and forth on my two and my one, but I think I'm going to go for my number two with Bundle of Joy from 1956. I think this one is excellent. It almost made my number one. It's one of those movies I just love seeing her in. And I mean, for a lot of the listeners probably know, but in 1956, Debbie and Eddie were pop culture. They had just saturated movie magazines and everything and there was this huge clamor to finally get them in a film together and this was it and I believe Debbie was pregnant with Carrie at the time yes and just seeing her in these costumes you could tell she was having so much fun making this one the numbers are incredible it's a really adorable funny remake of Bachelor Mother from 1939 with Ginger Rogers and David Niven and it's just pulled off so well I think a lot of people really like to put down some of the 50s remakes of the 30s films but I think this one really hit the mark and it was such a needed film for the time and it really showed like the mid to late 50s what was going on in pop culture and it was Debbie and Eddie and they did such a fantastic job together. Obviously Eddie was not much of an actor certainly not a David Niven level actor My mother could do a Ginger Rogers. I mean, literally, she was quite capable of holding her comedy skills and all that. My dad, as you can see in the movie, is a little fish out of water a little bit, but they really worked hard with him. Suffice it to say, a lot of time was spent with him to get him to just be natural and quit acting and just don't get, you know, don't get caught acting as an old expression when you're in this business. And so, you know, he, if you watch him carefully, he doesn't know where to put his hands a lot of times. And, you know, I mean, I never noticed it's some funny stuff. But I agree, though, that's a very cute movie. Uh, the dance number where they're doing a jitterbug dance competition uh, and they're throwing my mother up in the air. She's literally, you know, six months pregnant with Carrie. So, you know, maybe Carrie's excuse, you know. I think Carrie has a, had a joke in her, her one yes. woman show where she, yeah, she was talking about like, that explains everything. Exactly. It, Maybe I got dropped or something. <laughs> and, uh, that was but ridiculous. I had I had bundle of joy as my number three, and you're right. Everything you said, Samantha, is is right. I mean, the remake, even now, I think, kind of gets a bum rap because there's always this comparison. But I find the bundle of joy really stands on its own as a separate. I consider this a bachelor mother separate entities. The songs are great. It's got that beautiful, like, pink satin quality to it that we saw in, like, something like Susan Slept Here. Definitely. Um, And I love everything. This is just one of those feel-good type of movies that you can just put on and have so much fun with. Well, I mean, a lot of the excuse to remaking a movie in these days was when you would go from a black and white to a technicolor. The studio was always trying to exploit that. Also, the studio was always trying to, you know, reuse its, its song inventories, um, that little number, How I Love My Little Baby, uh, that is a beautiful duet 
And so, to, you know, they're looking for ways to get these two to be able to do things together. That was awesome. And, and again, the world wanted to see, here's a chance to see Debbie and Abby's baby, you know, before they ever have it. Is it Adolf Manju? Who's the... Uh, I was going to bring him up. Him and Tommy Noonan. It's a really strong supporting cast. That's another uh-huh. thing that I really love about it. And, and the line that he says, which is the classic line in both films, you know, he says, well, I don't know who the father is, but I'm the grandfather. You know, it's like way beyond the dialogue. That's a cute thing to say, you know, and it's very sort of Americana in the sense that, you know, we, we adopt children here. You know, we don't think about bloodlines being like the critical thing. The idea that they're taking in this baby is their own. I, I think it's a beautiful subject. And I, I think the world you know, wanted to see Debbie and Eddie together and all that. But I think that the underlining story here is pretty cool. And it really ties into that post-war feel. Yeah. Very like home Americana, as you're saying, you know, all, all anybody is thinking about is having babies. Right. <laughs> so it was really perfect for the time. It was just what was needed. And, and just like you were saying, I probably wouldn't have even mentioned it if you hadn't, but Debbie and Eddie's voices are so fantastic together. Like the songs, I this is one that I want to get on record. <laughs> yeah, well, the I do have a copy of that album. In fact, I have one copy that I bought like at a garage sale or something where somebody had X'd out my father's face. And I think- <laughs> It might've been say, Debbie. <laughs> no, no, no. My mother was pretty cool about it all, and but the fans were not. There were millions of people across the world that resented him because uh, it was far less- I mean, I'm not saying that any of it is something that one would accept today even, but it still was far less acceptable back then in, in their mind to dump the America's sweetheart with these two kids uh, at the curb for this voluptuary Elizabeth Taylor. It is a major scandal of the highest order. I don't think anything has ever quite come close. Maybe the Angelina Jolie, Brad Pitt fiasco, but I don't think even that holds a candle to this fiasco. And the beauty of this story, of course, is that everybody got over it. My mother and Liz were lifelong friends before and then came back to becoming great friends. And obviously my dad, you know, and her remained friendly. When they were 20, I suspect there were some good reasons why they would make a couple. And the movie sort of outlined them. They were unbelievably cute together. But in real life, you'd be like, no way should they have been together. Carrie and I used to be like, what the heck was that all about? Uh, You know, I mean, (laughs) because it didn't make any sense if you knew their personalities. I mean, it was my mother was way outclassed him. Kimberly, what about you? What is your number one? Hearing what Samantha did makes me a little nervous because I think I did the same thing. So I'm hoping my number one still comes up. But like I said, I've been picking the deeper cuts and I fell to the rat race from 1960. I was going to have that as an honorable mention, but I'm glad we can expand on it. That one I dove into, I love Robert Mulligan as a director. I've championed him on write-ups and everything before. And I just, I love, love, love his work. So I was looking for an excuse to bring that one up at some point. So The Rat Race stars Debbie with Tony Curtis and is along the same lines as almost a sweet smell of success, looking at the dark side of show business. And Tony Curtis, hungry musician who moves to, you know, New York to hit it big and moves in next to Debbie's character, who's a struggling dancer. And we're just looking at the seedy side of what New York and very pre most things Don Rickles is in there is what a seedy, what nightclub mafia type. 
And it's just, once again, it's Debbie playing with that persona that she had. She's kind of taking what they would give her and then showing, look, see, here's what else I can bring. And she's so good in it. And it's such a powerful movie because, I mean, Mulligan had such a flair for finding the character in those quiet moments. And they all just gel so well together into such a beautiful film that I was truly amazed I hadn't really heard of and wasn't very familiar with until I watched it. I like that choice. Of course, Tony Curtis became friends with my mom and lifelong friends once again. And even in New York, we lived across the street from each other uh, years later. But that movie, it has a dark side, obviously, to it, but it's still a good ride. It's not like it's Apocalypse Now kind of dark. You know, I mean, it's 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 a good ride. And, and the controversy within the story is really good. And as you point, the directing is outstanding for a simple, relatively simple little story structure. To me, one of the, my favorite things, many years later, my mother was playing Vegas and Don Rickles and her were performing together. And I actually cut to, put a film clip sequence together. And... You know, people in Vegas are not necessarily there to see a drama film. So how, what do I do to make a, a, acceptable clips for a Vegas audience to show them working together? This could be challenging. But one of the things that I did is my mother taught me something that uh, Charlie Chaplin said. He said, you know, three times is funny. One time can be amusing, a little better, too, but three times it's always going to get a laugh. So there's a scene in that movie where, where he's literally undressing my mother. We're talking now about Don Rickles. And at a certain point, he and his object lesson is that he owns her. That's the concept. But at a certain point, as she walks out, he slaps her, which is not funny, of course. But I ran that clip three times in a row and the entire audience explodes in laughter. So it shows how you could take something that is not intended to be funny at all in a scene that is intense. In fact, it's abuse. And, and yet you can make it uh, amusing. And of course, they wanted that because they wanted there's Don Rickles, my mom, friends in Vegas together. You know, they want that light side of it. And that movie is far from light. In fact, it might be one of the heavier movies my mother ever did. I think you pointed that out. I would agree with that. I think this one is so swept under the rug. Honestly, I, like I said, I was going to include it in my honorable mentions if, if there was an opportunity because it's one that people just don't know about for some reason. And it's so strange to me because she and Tony were such big stars and their acting in this is incredible. I mean, to me, the theme of it is New York is a not so great place. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure all this goes on now. T- now, Tony Curtis went on, obviously, to make Goodbye Charlie with my mother as well. And they're amazing together. And that's an interesting movie. You know, my mother was not slated to be the lead. I'll give you a little off the record trivia here. Who was supposed to be the lead in Goodbye Charlie? Do you guys know that trivia? I'm trying to remember. Prior to my mom, who was... So Fox uh, had slated Marilyn Monroe. She was under contract even so far as I have the costume sketches in our collection of the wardrobe that she was going to wear in that movie. So they were going to use her as the lead in Goodbye Charlie and then cut her because she was obviously having a hard time showing up to work. They uh, went out and hired my mom because she was number one box at the time. And my mother nails that. that. That would be my honorable mention as Goodbye Charlie. That movie is... Again, situation comedy, I guess you'd call it drama, sophisticated. But I bring that up because that was, again, her and Tony Curtis together. And I thought they were magical. But the rat race, I think they are so romantic, the two of them. Did you guys feel that? Did you, I mean, I was yeah, I wanted them to be Definitely. together in that one really bad. Yeah, I, like yeah, I wanted him to be my father at that point. I was, you know, looking for <laughs> a good replacement. And I thought maybe 
he would he was available i think at the time he had had problems with janet lee and I cannot imagine that would have been a couple for the sixties. My goodness. Well, Janet was no small change. I mean, she was some hot stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. Our, our holiday affair episode is pretty much me just talking about how amazing Janet Lee is. So for me, my number one, it's unoriginal, but it is singing in the rain. We had to from, do it. <laughs> <I'm glad. laughs> so, so we had to have it on we here. Had to. I mean, it's quintessential Debbie, but I've, I've seen this movie several times we did Gene Kelly top three and we talked to Patricia Ward Kelly and we had talked about you know there's a lot of discussion about singing of the rain both good and bad you know Gene Kelly as a taskmaster Debbie's stories about the challenges that he provided her as an actor some might say that they were mean in certain instances but she holds her own and I think that that is what is not given enough recognition for a girl her age to come into this film and hold her own opposite Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor and Gene Hagen and all these other stars. I mean, there is no artifice in that performance. You know, we talk about Eddie Fisher not being an actor and you can tell when you watch something like Bundle of Joy, you never once believe this is a girl who is just starting out, which I think is utterly a testament to her brilliance as a performer she can do the comedy every time I live in LA every time I see Sunset in Camden I do it with the lilt she's able to convey the romance she's able to do the dancing I love Jean but that movie does not work with just Jean it works with her as well and it's not an original choice but it's my number one uh, Debbie Reynolds performance I think the world would jump on that one you know as their number one in many ways I think it's my favorite musical of all time just aside from everything else I love it because it's a musical about making a musical and so everything is justifiable whereas in most musicals people are just busting out into song for no reason and it's hard to suspend belief sometimes about all that but I will tell you this that my mother at that time wasn't even sure she wanted to be a movie star you know, she's standing in this Louis B. Mayer's office and Gene is right there telling Louis B. Mayer, Lillian Sidney is standing there. I, I, you know, I want a real leading lady. You know, I mean, give me a Sid Charisse or something. I mean, and they're like, no, th- we want this sort of innocence here, Gene. You know, and he's like, yeah, but I need someone who can actually dance and do something. There's no way she's going to make it. I mean, I'm going to, you know, we're going to bury her. Now, he knew that because that would be true in 99.9% of the cases. He was right. But there were others in that room, Lillian Sidney and Louis B. Mayer, that knew otherwise and stuck with her even against his desire to replace her. And they saw that thing, that je ne sais quoi, that little something, that that thing that she had. And it comes out in the movie, as you said, even that little silly line, sunset in Camden. It's a throwaway, but I mean, everything about it, everything that she does is somehow believable. And she is that character. Now, of course, she is that character. I mean, we've seen it 12,000 times, but the lack of of belief in her didn't deter her either. You know, I've told different stories about this and we all know, I suppose you guys know the story of Fred Astaire bailing her out in the middle of the movie. You know, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why she stuck with it. Part of it though is just, you know, our family motto, never say can't. I think she wasn't going to get beat no matter what. You know, that was part of the game there. I mean, even if she went on to become a gym teacher and never act again, she was going to make sure that Gene Kelly's words were, were he'd make him eat those words. 
I got to ask, because we, who, uh, when else are we going to get the opportunity to talk to anybody who is tangentially connected to Gene Hagen? But I don't, I think her and Gene Hagen are, I love Donald O'Connor and Gene, but I mean, those two are the MVPs of the oh, film. My. Neither one nominated for an Oscar, which irks the crap out of me to this day. Well, Gene um, Hagen, she's unbelievable, is all I can say. I mean, I don't know anybody that can play the dumb platinum blonde thing the way she does it's just unbelievable and i mean in the way it all plays out and even the way she gets embarrassed in the end and all it's just it's genius and the, even the microphone shtick i mean just everything i can't stand him i can't stand him and that really happened that's the other thing that's kind of cool about watching this movie it's true they actually did give diction lessons to these these silent screen actors and tried to figure out who could make its way into talkies and so there's a lot of interesting history mixed into that movie but man i totally agree gene hagan's comedy skills are off the charts it was shocking to me when i finally heard her real voice because i was like wait that that's not how she can't be okay. <laughs> exactly samantha what is your number one we, we can't leave singing in the rain here <laughs> yeah. go for it I have such a deep, deep emotional connection with this film. It's the first classic film I ever saw. I think for most people, it is that gateway drug. And it's really what I identify with her and what most people identify with her. I've said this before, you know, people ask like, what celebrity death hits you the hardest? For me, it's Debbie. Like, I was a mess. I, it was like the first time I really like sobbed. And I still do when I think of her a lot of the time. And literally the next month after she passed away, they showed Singing in the Rain on the big screen across the country. They had already planned to do that before she had even passed away. And I was like, I, I was already going to go. I was like, I'm still going to go. It's going to be hard, but I'm going to go. And then they had like the in memory of that they put before it. And I was just a mess all the way through. And it, it honestly, it's still a hard movie for me to get through now, even though it's such a sunshiny movie. But Debbie is the glue that holds it together, I think. And when I finally got the Singing in the Rain vinyl and I play it all the time, they have an extra song where she sings You Are My Lucky Star as a solo instead of just at the end with Jean. And I found out that it was a deleted scene. They really needed to keep it in. But that her singing that song, that's probably my favorite song that Debbie has sung in a film. Yeah, and... my mother was underrated as a singer, too. In fact, they dubbed one of her songs, obviously, in the movie. It's right. Voice, which With is like totally unnecessary, but it shows you even at that moment, they didn't really know how to handle her. Like, she couldn't pull off that song? What, are you kidding me? You know, I mean, it's a joke. But looking back, you know, she did 12 albums. I mean, it's not, it's a lot of records, you know. And just her, her vocals in this film, the dance sequences, Good Morning is just so memorable. And I love her dress in that one. And I have that dress right here in the other room, by the way. I know. I knew that that was one of the ones in the Debbie collection. I had seen pictures of it before. I don't think it's one that was in the, in the Debbie collection, but I saw the Jean London exhibit in PA when it came up here. And I saw Sid Charisse's white gown yes. from that Broadway melody number. And the whole train was like strung all over the ceiling. And that was pretty surreal. Let's not forget Sid here. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mean, She's in the one scene. I totally agree with Gene Kelly in this regard. I mean, she is the quintessential dancer. I mean, her dance numbers in this movie are unreal. The big spender number where he slides up under her leg like that. Not only is it so sexy, it is just, it's a hot dance number. 
period. And uh, when I was a little boy, many years after seeing the rain, obviously, I met Sid Charisse and I remember looking up at her and she reached down and shook my hand and all I could see were legs. So my eyes didn't even get past her legs. They just kept going and going and going. She was all legs. And as the expression goes, she knew how to use them. She absolutely does in that number, honestly. And, and just the way that, that she works with Jean, I think she's a Jean's sort of female foil on screen. Like, I love them in Brigadoon, but I but love style, Debbie and Donald, dance too. style, you know, was, so Jean, in my opinion, was sort of a, a mix, a beautiful mixture of modern jazz with tap. And he had this sort of this thing that he created within that discipline. And, and she was right there. I mean, man, that number, the way she slides down his arm. I mean, that is unreal stuff. That is the finest choreography ever. I know lots of good choreographies, lots of good stuff out there, but that's top five, you know, good stuff. And that's why I never want to forget her because she, man, does she bring something to that movie. You can say that about so many of the dance numbers in that film, though. To me, like Moses Supposes is an underrated favorite for me. And I was carrying like, my good favorite morning. number in the whole movie. Mm-hmm. We used to sing that number together all the time. We knew the, all the lyrics and we used to, you know, mile fit and fake tap dance and you know, we just thought that was the cutest number ever. It's such an infectious soundtrack. I, we couldn't say enough about that film. I feel like we could talk a whole other hour just about Smith and the Rain. Well, it, it definitely, a little bit of trivia here. So Robert Osborne, good friend of the family, you know, for decades, and he was the trivia king. As far as I'm concerned, he knew more about film than anybody ever knew. And I got him on one interesting piece of trivia regarding this movie. So my mother's actual name in the movie was Kathy Selden, but in the original early days, it was Kathy Sands. And I have the inner office memo from MGM from Arthur Fried saying, Deb, the name Kathy Selden shall be changed from Kathy Sands to Kathy Selden. He did not know that she actually in the early days had a different name. Kathy, yes, but Sands versus Selden. I didn't know that either. Yeah, so it's in the front of the, it's in the front of the, I kept the office memo. It's an MGM memo. It's probably the only memo that exists that has that little piece of trivia in there. Wow. Samantha, there's no way to top that. Go, go into your number one. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So like I said, I was really flipping my number one and my number two, but I have to mention this film. This film is like such a soft place in my heart, aside from, of course, Sing in the Rain. And it's the tender trap with Debbie and Frank Sinatra. I mean, a lot of people will consider it a Frank Sinatra film. I definitely consider this one a Debbie film with some Frank in there. I think they play off of each other so well. You can just tell that she's still sort of new to the game. And Sinatra is the seasoned professional. But I think that dynamic is so cute. And again, their songs, their voices go so well together. I love the costumes. It's that perfect mid-century technicolor. All the songs are fantastic. I, I love her character and her character's goals. I think it's so telling of the time, too. I, I, just, I just love her in it. I couldn't say enough good things about that, the That movie was actually shot in CinemaScope, one of the first CinemaScope musicals. So it has, it's a very wide aspect ratio compared to, say, Singing in the Rain, which is actually a very, almost square. It's a, what's called 4-3 aspect ratio. That's almost double 
the width by the time we get to that movie. As you pointed out, Frank was the seasoned professional, certainly many years senior to her, and they have to play this romantic love interest, which is a little challenging because the truth is he was too old for her. But off the set, he knew that. And I, I tell the story about how he gave my mom advice, you know, off the set. He said, now, Debbie, whatever you do, don't ever marry a singer. And I always thought that was pretty cute advice. And he was in all sincerity telling her, you know, try to stay with people like me. <laughs> and of course, my mom went right out and married my dad, the singer. So she, she didn't take that advice that she probably should have. But then again, where would Carrie and I be if if she took his advice. So it's a good thing my mom didn't listen to Frank Sinatra because you wouldn't have Carrier Todd. And it's so unexpected too. I mean, if you look at Frank Sinatra's filmography, you wouldn't necessarily think to pair her or to pair him with Debbie. And here we have this beautiful film. Well, on the other hand, they were looking, it's the taming of the shrew in reverse. The idea that you're taming Sinatra was the whole point of the movie. So they had to pick this girl with this innocence, right? So, I mean, actually the, the casting is is right on the money because the premise of the movie, of course, is he's this womanizer and he gets landed by this unsuspecting little impish girl. I love that scene where she's, you know, the, the, you know, the taxi cab scene where she's like, and why is the meter running? I mean, you know, she has this attitude in there that reminds me a lot of Carrie's attitude with Darth Vader. Yes, they were these sweet little innocent girls, but they had this attitude. And my mother, of course, passed that along to Carrie, and you see how she similarly handles herself in her roles that way. They're not far apart. Exactly, exactly. We'll throw out a couple honorable mentions just uh, if anybody has them, but I did want to throw out the first Debbie Reynolds movie I ever saw, which is Charlotte's Web from 1973, which is still uh, a heartbreaker of a film. And I am a big fan of Debbie's later stuff. So like Halloween Town is perennial favorite in my house. And the Carrie and Debbie documentary, Bright Lights, which I think is still on HBO Max, uh, which will make you cry, make you laugh. And it's, uh, it's just a perfect documentary. Yes, well, and obviously I was one of the producers on that. So Charlotte's Web, really interesting selection because that was one of the first movies that uh, of my mom's movie that I can remember as a boy being traumatized by ironically I think we all were I think we all were yeah. that anybody who read the book or watched the movie is collectively traumatized well I didn't expect to be traumatized obviously you know but you know I was just watching the movie and I, like any other kid I was watching it just like any other kid would watch that movie and so I was like having I was loving it you know I mean you're just in love with this spider and its wisdom and the way it handles the world. You know, it's like, wow. And then all of a sudden the spider starts talking about the cycle of life. And at a certain point it dies. I mean, literally my mother had to take, we, I watched it in our screening room home. I'm, I was inconsolable. I was crying in the back of the projector. She had to explain to me that this, you know, was just a cartoon character and all of that. She's trying to explain that. I couldn't even explain why I was crying, but the truth is I was moved by the beauty of that story and the, and the life cycle part of it and the loss, you know, that everybody was experiencing is these fictitious characters, but the loss is very real. And it's, it's a beautiful story. And, and, you know, she is Charlotte and her voice, it's such the Debbie voice. I mean, she had this, hello, dear, this is your mother. I mean, that is how she talked for real, by the way, <laughs> whatever else. 
I say that my mom and I refer to each other. We we borrowed that and we use it in our own house. So (laughs) you're welcome welcome to do that because I think that's a very endearing term anyway. Hello, dear. I actually have a plaque outside my house on the side of my ranch that says, hello, dear. So yeah, Um, but but that was a beautiful movie for sure. When they remade it, I was disappointed they didn't call her. That's kind of insane. I mean, I am not a a fan of the CGI remakes in general, but would have been nice to have the callback in some way. Well, I think she earned it. I mean, it was a pretty popular movie. I mean, if you look at the stats on that movie, it's very, very popular. Brought up Bright Light. You know, that was a, a sort of a family project. Carrie was the one who sort of instigated it. You know, was worried that we were going to lose my mom at some point, wanted to do a, like a little tribute piece on her. And, you know, I told Carrie that I would never fly because my mother wouldn't allow it. And had you gone to my mother and just said, we're going to do a documentary, sort of a puff piece on you, we're going to talk about how great you are. She would have been like, yeah, right, hit the road. She would have hated that. So Carrie was like, all right, well, how how do we sell it? You know, and I said, we got to sneak up on it. You know, we're going to have to make it more about you and her or something different, you know. And as we got started with this film, my mother didn't know what we were doing. And literally when we were sitting, we're with Fisher Stevens and people in her house and, you know, she's saying, okay, well, where are my marks? Well, Debbie, we're we're not doing a Mark's, you know, this is sort of, we're just going to follow you around. You're packing to go on the road and Carrie's going to follow you around. Where's the script? You know, where's the the dialogue? You know, well, actually there is no dialogue. Also, we're going to just do like an improv. So that's how we sold it. We're like, well, it's sort of an improv, but I don't really want it to seem like an improv. I actually had to pull her aside and be like, no, we just want you to pack up like you normally would sort of, I mean, you guys can have some fun with each other in the banter department, but we don't want it to be fake either. You know, so it has to sort of be like the whole idea of this movie is supposed to be sort of real. We want to peel back this little curtain so people can actually see what the two of you are like. It's very interesting to actually see the two of them interact. You never do. I mean, there is no other example anywhere of Carrie and my mother interacting in this fashion. It's a very interesting study on its own, this mother-daughter study. But that was the challenge was to get my mother to, to forget because she didn't do documentaries or these, her, the format was not familiar to her. Uh, and then later on, uh, we were running the film, some of the uh, early cuts of the film. It was full length and she sat through the whole film and at the end she looked at me, she was like, I don't get it. <laughs> oh my goodness. Why are we doing this? And I was like, well, you see, <laughs> people are going to find this interesting. And I said also, and she was very offended by the idea that we were showing Carrie talking about the mental health and, and the idea that Carrie literally has a manic breakdown on camera. I don't why are we doing that? I said, because it will help people. And this is what Carrie wants to do. You know, she wants to let the cat out of the bag, so to speak, want to take this cloak, you know, this mystique off of this of mental illness. And this is what Carrie's all about. And this really will help do that. So that was sold, so to speak, with that angle. Otherwise, she was ready to shoot the whole thing down. <laughs> I mean, it was almost like, yeah, I don't think we should do this. I think we should can it. I mean, she yeah. had the power, you know, to, to shut it down. I mean, you know, we in effect were producing the whole thing. What would I, what would I gonna say? No, you know, if she, I really don't think we should do this. And it was almost like, I was, whoa, 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 we better, <laughs> we got to get you on board here. So exactly. she did understand that. And, and ironically, my mother had started the Thalians, which was, you know, a, a nonprofit charity that was dedicated to children's mental health. And, you know, it just so happened, Carrie turned out to have that disability. It wasn't planned that way. It's just the way it was. And so I was like, what's wrong with this being an extension of that? 
Yeah, we've actually, we've had Ruta Lee on the show. And of course, the first thing that I ask her is, what was it like working with Debbie on the Thaley? <laughs> they were together forever. I, I ran something the other night on our, on Kat's little blog show, uh, her, her uh, Facebook show. And uh, I ran a film clip from my mother's 50th birthday party. And there was Ruta co-hosting, <laughs> you know, the birthday party. So, I mean, it's just like, she was a fixture, especially when you needed some boisterous broad you know, to, yeah. to host something. I mean, she had that <laughs> pizzazz. My mother was, they were terrific together in hosting things. They were really fun to watch. Ruta is such a character and I imagine Debbie was too. I think a Bright Lights with the two of them would have been also crazy. <laughs> well, you know, I, I brought Ruta to the memorial uh, when we did my mom's memorial and she did a little segment, you know, on my mom and I filmed that and it's very cute and very, you know, it's a great tribute. And they were similar in many ways, uh, but there was nobody quite like my mom. Of course, she was a bigger star, so to speak. But, you know, there was just something very unique, obviously. You know, Ruta, I'm not taking anything away from Ruta, but in my view, my mother was a very unique actress, a very unique performer. Her values were very clear to the world. Who you saw and what you thought about her was truly who she was. That's not always the case in Hollywood. When she looked in the mirror, she was super comfortable with what she saw. I don't mean just a pretty woman. I mean, she was a very together, strong, well-grounded person of faith, person of country, you know, really had a very strong set of values and made no bones about it. Did what she thought was right in life, no matter what the cost, cost her dealer. You know, she had a TV show on the Debbie Reynolds show back in the day, in the 60s, it was very successful. And she got into a scrap because she told the network she didn't want commercials from cigarette companies on there. Right. We started to figure out that cigarettes were killing people. And she literally let that show go down the drain in protest because they put cigarette commercials on her show. So she said, I'm not doing it. So not many people would do that. They'd be like, ah, who am I to fight City Hall? She'd be like me. Exactly. Samantha, Kim, do you either of you have honorable mentions you want to shout out before we start wrapping it up? I would definitely say I think the one that we left out a little bit, so to speak, would be the unsinkable Molly Brown. Which that's, we have done an episode on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think to me that's definitely a career defining film for her. I think just the amount of guts that it took for her to stand up over Shirley MacLaine and say, no, I want this role. This is a role that I can do when everybody underestimated her and doubted her ability to do it. And then she comes up and gets an Oscar nomination for it. It was a tough race that year, but she should have won. The funny line, the actual line is Charles Walters, uh, directors called her over. You know, she wanted to get together and pitch why she should play the part. And so she took a moment to explain why she could do the part. And he said, Debbie, you know, I just don't see it. You know, you're, you're just much too small for the part. And she said, well, how small is the part? You know, she, she just totally bucked him all the way down. And by the way, he's not the one that approved it. I mean, the studio is the one that approved it. He did not approve it. He didn't even want her even until he saw the rushes. And that was typical. People underestimated her. Uh, even later on, they estimated her because she was pigeonholed to some degree as a certain type of actress or whatever. You know, so they weren't even sure what her abilities were, you know. And as you pointed out, they gave the Best Actress Award, you know, to Julie Andrews 
for that layered performance of Mary Poppins uh, after stiffing her for The Sound of Music, which is so typical of the Academy to screw up and then try to make good and then screw up further. You know, <laughs> I mean, I'm no, no slide on Mary Poppins, but that's not The Sound of Music. I mean, Julie Andrews should have won for Sound of Music and my mom should have won for Molly Brown. Am I wrong, girls? No, not at all. I like that lineup. I think Debbie just needed an Oscar. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, she got one in the end, the Jean Herschel uh, Lifetime Achievement Award, which is fitting because of her body of work and charities and a lot of things in life. And so that was a good, let's just call that a, a good save by the Academy. Exactly. And if it exactly. wasn't for certain people at the Academy, that wouldn't have happened either. It took a group of girls at the Academy to go, hey, this needs to happen. Fortunately, the Academy has enough people of conscience in it along the way to keep it on the rails. They, they pulled one out of the hat that time. That was a really righteous thing to do, and I'm glad they did it. Much well, deserved. Exactly. Kim, anything you want to shout out? I mean, there, there are so many I could. I mean, I was just looking at the filmography again. Dobie Gillis, I have to mention. I mean, her matching up with Bobby Van, who's oh, man. such a such a performer. I love Melvin. It's always one I go to. It's, so cute. It's just give a girl a break is another one. It's just pick that a movie and watch it. Mention too. Yeah, I love that one. Those are strong. Those three are strong. Bobby Van was another black and white film. Uh, and, and she sings All I Do is Dream of You with Bobby Van in mm-hmm. the duet. And it's and he plays ukulele. It's freaking adorable. She and Donald O'Connor in I Love Melvin are also adorable. And, and of course, their dancing skills together are off the charts. That's another underrated one. Uh, there's some amazing dance lovers in Adobe Gillis, too. I mean, don't forget that's Bob Fosse in there with Bobby Van. I mean, that that dance number, is, um, those are great dance numbers. And of course, when, you, when you're talking about give a girl a break. So now all of a sudden you got Bob Fosse again doing a number with Debbie, but then also Gower doing applause. Those two numbers are unreal. Those are beautifully choreographed, amazing production, typical, really classic MGM musical stuff. Those are beautiful things to watch. I mean, those are technicolor, gorgeous. And the choreography is off the chart. I mean, Gower, of course, was the quintessential dancer, but Fosse was a newcomer compared to him. So it's an interesting film to watch. Those are great choices for alternates. It's a t- You know, it's an interesting thing when they were doing the programming for Debbie's birthday here a few days ago in Turner, you know, what do you choose? You could see how that would be a, it's not an easy task because these are all certainly worthy, fun films to watch. What I will say about this whole era of film is that they're fun, inspiring movies. And you walk away from most of these movies really feeling good. And that was sort of like the goal of the movie industry back then. And I think we've lost that for sure. I mean, some people are still doing it, but you know what I'm saying? In general, the mission has definitely changed. Uh, entertainment is probably more about making you cry than making you laugh. You know, the, the journey of the story and the film has lost its way a little bit. I mean, I think every movie we just mentioned, you'd walk out of there thinking, gee, I want to go get some dance lessons or I want to learn to sing or, or where's my boyfriend? You know, I mean, you know, they're romantic and they're, they're, they inspire you with music and love. And I mean, you know, it's like, I don't know. I, I don't see a lot of that happening today as much. There's a few honorable mentions in that category too, of things that get made today. But typically speaking, this was a machine that was cranking these movies out every year. I've showed you that little row of scripts there. I mean, my mother was making two and three movies a year. That was quite something. 
I think you hit the nail right on the head. And for me, I feel like Debbie embodied so much of that positivity and so much of that energy that the 50s musicals brought. To me, she embodies the 50s musical. And I think just her passion for entertaining people, that's what really sticks with us. And that's why her movies really have permeated all of these decades. I agree. There's something that, you know, she puts out. Of course, the the movies themselves are from a simpler time. I think we've gotten overly complicated. I mean, no slide on, you know, Quentin Tarantino or something, but, you know, this stuff can be very intense. You know, I mean, those are great films, but a simpler time could have entertained you with the movies that we're talking about, much much simpler stories, you know, much lighter thing. Uh, We live in a world, you know, full of negativity that we see, we we get bombarded daily on the news with war and violence and all this craziness like never before. So again, when you go to the movies, you know, that you're looking for a relief from that, whether you're going to the movies in front of your TV or in a big screen, you know, you're looking for a little vacation from reality. And that was the premise of making movies of that era, a vacation from reality, an inspiring, heartwarming story about two, you know, I mean, that's how these movies were pitched to, to, for people to come see it. I, I do miss that simplicity. Exactly, exactly. Well, we want to remind our listeners that if there's a Debbie movie that we did not mention, you can email it to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com. You can tweet it to us at ticklish underscore biz or send it to us on Instagram and we will read it on a future episode. But we want to thank Todd Fisher for taking time to sit down and talk with us. Todd, where can fans find you online? What's your social media? Anything you want to uh, let them know about, please. Well, I, I have a website, uh, Todd at toddfisher.com. You know, that's not, it's toddfisher.com. You know, my book is on there. It's a cool story about Debbie and Carrie and myself and our lives together and quite a journey, uh, that book. It's sort of, you know, my seat in the bleachers in many cases, or in, in certain cases, me being the designated driver of the family. And, you know, so it's a fun story. Most people say it's a, it's a good journey. And I, you know, I, I have within my website, I have thousands of photographs that are organized by chapter, because in a book, there's only, if I say only, there's 200 pictures in my book, which by a book standard is a lot of pictures, but I think there's 2000 pictures, you know, that we have up on the uh, web. So uh, at the uh, toddfisher.com site, you'll find a lot of cool pictures, some cool archives. If you're a Debbie fan, there's a lot of good Debbie stuff in there. And then, you know, I think you can also download the audiobook. Originally, they actually had some pretty impressive people that would have read the book for me. And I said, no, you know, I should do it. I'll do it. And then, you know, as I was doing the book, everything was going really good till I got to the last chapters. And then I was like, who the hell wrote this thing? I mean, it was ripping my heart out. I was like, you got to be kidding. You know, part of writing a book like that, especially a sort of cover to cover story like this, is that, you know, you are, it is sort of cathartic. You're getting certain things out. You're telling stories that need to be told. I'm short hopping some things, too, to make sure no one uh, tells the wrong side of Carrie. You know, if you don't get Carrie, you could say, oh, she did drugs. Like, yeah, news story, news flash. You know, she wrote three books about it. You know, I mean, I, you know, I wanted to be the protector of all of that and also get some of the fun stories out. So it does all that. But the latter parts of the book are difficult. It talks about the departure. You know, that was a, a tough thing to endure. But, but, you know, that's what we, we are put to, we were trained by my mother. So, you know, I can, uh, I can endure anything that I, I don't like it, but I can do it. I will say Todd's book is, is fantastic if you have not read it. So shameless, 
shameless plug for here, me here. on that. As hey, well. look, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> We're not forcing anybody, but it is a good, if you like it, Debbie and Carrie, it is sort of mandatory reading because you're not going to get yeah. my perspective. There's a lot of people, somebody even wrote a book after me, way after, you know, they couldn't even talk to anybody that really knew Carrie. I was like, my parent knew Carrie better, you know, than, than the people you were interviewing. You can write an introspective on somebody, you know, even if you don't know them, you can just do work on the internet and write a book. But does that really give you the insight? and the depth to who they were. And I think that that's what I was able to do given my position in the family. Uh, I certainly got a good view on the two of those, two of those girls. Exactly. Just carrying the torch for her and, and Debbie's collection and her legacy, it's just so great to see. Carrie and I were both pressed into service when it came to sort of supporting that cause. We didn't understand the idea of preserving Hollywood history, but my mother, drilled it into us to where it really did become part of our DNA. And so, and I'm still, you can see that room, I'm still preserving that collection and lending things out to museums. I have pieces on loan to the Academy right now. And, you know, I'll continue to do that as long as I can. I'll continue to keep her, I have all of, you know, a lot of Debbie and Carrie's writings and some very important things that I, a lot of stuff that's unpublished too. So at some point, all this stuff, you know, could, could surface. Exactly, exactly. Well, Todd, we thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for doing what you guys do. I really appreciate this in-depth thing that you're doing here. I mean, not everybody is uh, as adept and knowledgeable as you guys. So I really appreciate uh, how, in, how deep you've gone into this. We try. We try very, very hard. That, that's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. As always, you can find us on all podcast platforms, including Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher Radio, and Apple iTunes, Apple Podcasts. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, reviews do matter. Please leave us a five-star review and help us get some more eyeballs on the show. We also have our social media channels, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, just search Ticklish Business. Remember our contest. If you are at TCM Classic Film Festival this year, find Kim and I and use the code word Crawford and you might win a prize pack of breakfast at Dominique's coffee. We also have our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz where we do bonus content, including a recent look that we did at the new West Side Story. We have a bunch of other stuff coming out there. You get access to special merchandise, movies, all sorts of stuff. Be sure to head over to that as well. We will be back with a new episode soon. Till then. Bye.